Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to irishhistoryshow.ie or you can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. On this episode of the show, we're joined by Kieran Glennon and we're going to talk about the sectarian conflict in Belfast between 1920 to 1922 and really ask, was it a pogrom? As always, I'm joined by John Dorney from The Irish Story. And first, John, I'd like to ask you, could you tell us about the history of sectarian conflict in Belfast in the 19th century? Yeah, well, the strange thing about Belfast in the early 19th century is that it's not a sectarian place at all. It's a majority Protestant town. It's at the start of the 19th century, kind of a merchant town. Now, one of the two big developments in Belfast is it becomes an industrial city in the 19th century, becomes Ireland's biggest city by the end of the 19th century and really an industrial powerhouse between linen weaving, uh, shipbuilding, all kinds of industries. It was a thriving city, and um, much more so than Dublin at the time. A kind of a corollary of that, though, was that people flocked to live in Belfast from the rest of Ireland and especially the rest of Ulster. From a kind of liberal Protestant town, Belfast became kind of a cauldron of, of sectarian division. So West Belfast and a pocket of East Belfast, as Kieran will explain, became kind of Catholic districts. So at the time, was the first Catholic district was known as the Pound, and today it's the, the Lower Falls kind of area, but it was known in the 19th century as the Pound Loney. The Sandy Row was the first kind of working class Protestant district. Shankill was a little bit later, but both of them are in West Belfast as well, nestled right up against the Catholic district. And what you start to see is from the 1840s onwards, and one of the first occasions is when Daniel O'Connell went to Belfast to try to spread his message there, and there was a very nasty riot. There was riots throughout the 1840s, Sam, whether it was moments of political tension like um, O'Connell's meeting, whether it was in some cases whipped up by uh, radical preachers, like a preacher called Roaring Hugh Hanna, for example, in the 1850s and 60s. There was a big riot in 1864, which I have an article in the Irish story about, which was um, sparked off when uh, nationalists from Belfast arrived back from a, a parade in Dublin. And Orange Order parades at the time were banned. And that sparked off 10 days of, of pretty deadly rioting, which left you know 12 people killed and several hundred wounded. And then the big one of the 19th century is, is the 1886 riots, which kind of prefigured a lot of things Kieran is going to talk about. So the Home Rule Bill was brought before the British Parliament and it was voted down in, in a revolt by the Liberals. But this caused really deadly violence in, in Belfast. So first of all, the shipyards, Catholics are driven out of their jobs and so on. Then you have the Orange Parades on, in July the 12th. And there's deadly riots between, largely actually between the Protestants and, and the police. The RIC, largely Catholic, of course, but who were under you know, central government uh, command rather than local unionist command. And then there's more riots in the 1890s, uh, which again are, are kind of sparked by home rule, plus like lots of little low-level riots, which are generally around the marching season in July. And, and I think uh, it's fair to say that this prefigures a lot of what we're going to hear about today. Yes, Kieran, you're very welcome to the show. Could you tell us about your own family background and how this led into your research? Well, my parents married when they had both emigrated to London. My mum was from Cork, my dad's from Belfast. They had me and my brother and we moved to Belfast in November 1968, which wasn't a great piece of family timing. And we moved from Belfast to Dublin in November 73. I think it was about 10 years ago now, one Christmas, I was out in my parents and I was reading a book about the peace protest, which was called The IRA Secret History. And my dad just happened to make a, a chance remark that he wished he had got his father to disclose his own secret history. I said, how do you mean? 
And he said his father had been in the IRA in the 1920s. He had been in the Free State Army during the Civil War, but he hadn't described any of it. And I was curious and I said, right, I'll, I'll look into this and see what I can find out. And that's where it all really started from, a chance remark one Christmas. And could you tell us about your book, the book that you ended up writing on this all this research? Well, the book actually grew out of the the research that I started and myself and my brother had the idea of doing a potted history of our granddad's life and doing this as a, a birthday present for my dad's 80th. And that came along, uh, his 80th was about five or six months after that particular Christmas. But in the course of what I've been able to find out in those first five or six months, I could see there was a bigger picture than Tom Glennon around the the role of the the Northern IRA, the interaction with the IRA in the South, with the provisional government after the treaty and so on. So carried on researching then, and um, that led to the book. Well, we should say for anyone who'd like to read it, it's called From Pogrom to Civil War, and it's an excellent book. And one of the things I think people find is that the northern aspect to the Irish revolutionary period isn't very well covered at all. It's it's still very under explored as a dimension of that period generally. I think when when I sat down to to write my book, there was maybe three or four books had been published dealing with that period in Belfast in particular. If we talk about the modern era, um, the first one was probably Jimmy McDermott, Northern Divisions. Robert Lynch had a book about the, the Northern IRA and the early years of partition. Alan Parkinson had a book called Belfast's Holy Wars. And there's been a, a couple more have been published since, probably fueled by the decade of centenaries. But in comparison with the literature on certainly compared to Cork, Dublin, Tipperary, Clare, any of the, the major centres of the War of Independence, the literature on the North is very, very scant, particularly when you bear in mind the number of fatalities that happened in the North as a proportion of overall fatalities on the island. Yeah, I mean, one reason maybe for that is the different character of the violence. I mean, in Belfast, Catholic folk memory, it's known as the pogrom. Can you talk about that idea, Kieran, that it was like a sectarian conflict rather than like a part of the national conflict? Well, in relation to the term pogrom, well, it, it came into use first in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and it was describing the attacks on Jews in Russia and Poland as well. And the, the kind of the dictionary definition of a pogrom is it's an organized massacre of a particular group generally done with government involvement. Now, in relation to what happened in Belfast in 1920 to 22, it wouldn't meet the strict definition of a pogrom, but the term was used by Belfast Catholics and by nationalists in the South as an emotive description of of what was going on and painting it as a sectarian conflict in which 
the Catholics were the persecuted minority. Now, if you approach the sort of the period from the point of view of the IRA in Belfast, they viewed themselves as being part of the IRA nationally and that they were fighting the, the same war of independence that people were fighting in the counties and provinces in the south. So, for example, the first actions taken in Belfast would have been the burning of the income tax offices at Easter 1920. There was one in North Street, there was one on the corner of Donegal Square. And this was part of a, a nationwide campaign that was instigated by GHQ in the South. Similarly, you had not in Belfast, but attacks on barracks in County Town, which were part of the East Down Brigade area. They were led by officers from the Belfast IRA. So you had Castle Wellen, you had arms raids in the likes of Bally Castle, where they basically broke into the barracks and stole weapons and uniforms and so on. So from the, the perspective of the, the Belfast IRA, they were part of a national war of independence. And the, the sectarian elements came along afterwards. And in actual fact, when when the first outbreak of sectarian violence came along in the summer of 1920, you had an account from Seamus McKenna gave a statement to the Bureau of Military History. And he said that initially the IRA tried to stay aside from what he described as the usual fratricidal strife. And by the usual, he meant the stuff that John described earlier on, the sectarian riots that had their genesis in the, the 19th century and they thought this is more of the same as we know i think that in 1916 there was an order given out not a shot to be fired in ulster because of the fear that there could be reprisals against the nationalist community if there was republican violence how did we get to the point where we have this outbreak of violence again communal violence in 1920 you could probably go all the way back to the plantations. But if you if you take your starting point as the home rule crisis and the fact that out of that evolved two diametrically opposed ideologies on the island, each of them had an armed wing, and the aspirations of unionism and nationalism stroke republicanism, there was no reconciliation possible between them. So with the home rule crisis, you had more rioting similar in nature to, to what had happened in the, the 19th century. There's obviously huge tension just in the, the lead up to the outbreak of the First World War when it seemed like armed civil war in Ireland was almost viewed as being inevitable. And it was only the, the outbreak of World War I that averted that. So there was there was an, a fault line there already in place from the, the home rule crisis. There was um, an outbreak of violence at a football match in 1919 involving Belfast Celtic, who were viewed as the, the nationalist team from West Belfast. And then probably what really brought matters to a head in the summer of, of 1920, First of all, you had the elections in January 1920, where nationalists won a majority of the 
urban council elections in the north, including probably most notably the Derry City Council became nationalist controlled for the first time, which was a huge alarm for unionism. So there was increased tension during 1920 because of that. There was an outbreak of violence in Derry in the second half of June of 1920, and there was shootings involved there, the UVF were involved, the IRA was involved, there was 20 people killed. So the North was like a powder keg. Then on the 12th of July in 1920, Carson made a speech at the field at the end of the, the Orange Parades, and this, this really lit that fuse. He said, we must proclaim today clearly, come what will and be the consequences what they may, that we in Ulster will tolerate no Sinn Féin, no Sinn Féin organisation, no Sinn Féin methods. And these are not mere words. I hate words without action. So that was on the 12th. And then a few days later, on the 17th of July, in Cork, the IRA killed police officer Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Ferguson Smith. Now, Smith had made an inflammatory speech to policemen in Tralee, where he had basically advocated a shoot-to-kill policy. After Ferguson made the speech, there was a mutiny, and he obviously became a target for the, the IRA in Munster. He was killed on the 17th of July in Cork. There was a delay for a couple of days because the railway men refused to transport his body up to Banbridge, where he was originally from. The funeral happened on the 19th of July in Banbridge, and there was rioting afterwards, Aryan rioting directed at Catholics. It spread from Banbridge to Dromore, and then from Dromore on to Belfast. And that's where you had the first outbreak in Belfast on the 20th, the day after the, the funeral, with the shipyard expulsions, because they came back from the 12th holidays and Starting in the morning in the shipyards, Catholic workers were violently driven out, some thrown in the lagging. This spread to some of the big industrial companies in Belfast, so Mackey's Engineering, the Sirocco Rope Works, Gallagher's and so on. So yet thousands of Catholics were forcibly expelled from their jobs. And it should be remembered, the expulsions didn't just involve Catholics. What they called or what were viewed as being rotten prods who were basically socialists, trade unionists and so on, who were also seen as being disloyal to the empire. They were driven out of their jobs as well. So you have the, the workplace expulsions and then later on in the evening when people started coming back from work to where they lived, you had rioting in the Clannard area, which would be almost an, an interface between what John described earlier on as the, the Shankill and Falls, the Lower Falls. And that's where the, the first violence started there on the, the evening of the 20th. Well, one of the things I think for people who aren't from Belfast when they visit Belfast is how compact a city it is. Not in terms of the amount of people, but just in terms of the size of the city. It's quite small and compact. And in this period, there's no peace walls. All these sort of, as you say, interface areas are right up on top of each other. It must have been terrifying when sectarian violence would kick off if you're living in, in an area neighbouring a different uh, religious area. Yeah, and I think 
the, the classic fault line in Belfast would be between the, the Falls and the Shankill. Now, there was a very interesting paper done by a geographer, actually, Niall Cunningham, who pointed out that many of the streets leading between the Falls and the, the Shankill were actually mills and light industrial buildings and so on, but not residential. And it tended to, that, that fact tended to channel the violence down very particular streets. So, for example, a lot of the violence on the first night happened in Ashmere Road, one of the, the streets in Clannard. And it's interesting to sort of look at the parallels backwards to the 19th century, but if you, if you take a parallel forward, at the bottom of Kashmir Road is Bombay Street, which was burnt out in 1969. So it's almost like there's a, a choreography for, for the violence to follow particular patterns in particular streets. Um, Conway Street was another where the, the violence erupted in 1920 and in 1969. On that topic, Kieran, like there's, the violence is kind of confined to number of kind of really intense flashpoint areas like can you talk about them like the shipyards east belfast west belfast how did it work back in the 1920s i think you could almost draw sort of three types of of area in which catholics found themselves right one would be found the lower falls clannard out the falls road towards milltown where it was overwhelmingly catholic so it was very homogenous if you like and it was bordered by an equally homogenous unionist area in the, in the Shankill. So that's one where you've large concentrations, but very homogenous. Then you've got the likes of isolated pockets elsewhere in the city. And Ballymacarrett, as it was known then, and it's probably better known as the Short Strand today, was on the east of the city. So it was... And bounded on one side by the river, but other than that was surrounded by unionist areas. You had something similar in Ardoin and the Marabone or the Bone in North Belfast. The market is, is interesting because it was another small pocket of isolated nationalist streets, but it was bounded sort of on one side by the river, on the other by the city centre. And so it wasn't as hemmed in as you like. And so it wasn't subject to as much violence during the pogrom period. And then you had a whole string of areas starting with, say, from the river, working through Sailor Town, York Street, North Queen Street, the New Lodge, Old Park, and so on, where the communities were much more mixed. And the, the, so there was less homogenous areas and those were the ones where the violence tended to be worse where the there was no strength in numbers if you like for for catholics in the way that they had in the likes of west belfast or even in ballymacarrett where they were they were fenced in but they had numerical strength I mean, just one more question. I mean, it sparked my, um, it sparked something in my mind there, Kieran, when you mentioned Sailor Town, because you know, back in the days of of Jim Larkin in um, 1905, I think it was, you know, there was cross sectarian uh, mobilization in support of strikers and stuff. And not everyone in Belfast was a sectarian bigot waiting to kill the other side. 
Absolutely not. Yeah, the, the Docker strike of 1907, again, that that involved both sides of the religious divide were involved in that. The police were involved in it and not in a putting it down point of view. You did have these incidents where the, the usual sectarian fratricidal strife was set aside. There was a very big engineering strike in 1919, which didn't proceed along religious or sectarian grounds. There were possibilities other than sectarian or nationalist fee unionist politics to develop. Why do you think that went out of the window in, in 1920, Kira? I think it's because the the development that I talked about from the, the elections and the, the home rule crisis and so on. Uh, what's probably important as well is the 1919 strike that I mentioned. That actually was defeated. And one of the responses of unionism to that strike and to the increased labour militancy, one of the responses was to bring it out in-house, if you like. So there was the United Ulster Labour Association was set up under the auspices of the Unionist Party. And it stood for elections where the Labour Party would have been viewed as natural candidates to fill that role. So to to an extent, the, the Labour militancy on the, the unionist side was co-opted by mainstream big house unionism. And what was the strength of loyalist paramilitarism in 1920 like there seems to be a, a belief that the UVF and these other associated loyalist groups had gone away or had disappeared with the the first world war and all, all being absorbed into the 36th Ulster division but what happened after the war and particularly in this period in 1920 I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the formation of the specials and um, because the specials were set up ostensibly from the, the government's point of view, um, later on in 1920, as a way of managing various loyalist vigilante stroke militia type groups that had sprung up. The UVF wasn't, it wasn't simply a case of, oh, we'll transport the UVF en masse into the specials. What they were particularly concerned about was the the likes of the Imperial Guard, the Ulster Protestant Association, which were large paramilitary groups that had sprung up during 1920. So while the UVF hadn't gone away, you know, to paraphrase, they weren't the only players on the, the unionist side in terms of armed groups. There were several. And it was to try and harness these and put some discipline on them, if you like, that the specials were set up. Well, that's interesting. Like, what responsibility should we place on the unionist leadership and the future government of Northern Ireland when it comes to the violence from loyalist paramilitarism or, at a later stage, from the special constabulary? I don't think they are in any way innocent. I've already talked about Carson's speech on the 12th. James Craig made a speech in one of the shipyards shortly after the expulsions, and he basically applauded what had been done. The unionist establishment was obviously hostile to republicanism. 
But it wasn't until the Government of Ireland Act in the very end of, of 1920 that the prospect of a unionist government was even put on the table by Westminster. That government didn't come into being until after the election of May 1921. Parliament met in June. The unionist government of Northern Ireland then came into being, but it had nothing to work with. It had no machinery of government, and it wasn't until they had got their civil service established and so on, and it was much later in 1921 that, crucially, the unionist government was given security and policing powers for the North. And that's when the violence really takes off and it becomes particularly bad after the treaty. And it's not a reaction of unionism against the treaty by any means. It's because after November 1921, they have got their hands on the machinery of the police, the specials and so on. And Kieran, we're not really going to be able to go into every every flare up from this period because there's there's many of them. But roughly, you know, there's five hundred odd people killed in Belfast, isn't that right? In this period, I make it four hundred ninety eight. I've I've counted and cross referenced and so on. There was another handful where either there's no reference to them in the newspapers at the time. There were some accidental deaths which I I set aside. Although obviously the the guns that killed those people were there because of the the violence generally. But yeah, 498 people died over the course of the two and a bit years. Yeah, and and it's a different pattern of of political violence from the more recent troubles, isn't it? I mean, it's not so much car bombs, not so much kind of assassinations. It's something else, I would say, no? There's a lot of it relates to riots. And those riots could be fired on by snipers or gunmen generally so there's there's a lot of killings where you can't really say oh well they were killed by so and so because there's so much killing takes place in chaotic circumstances of the 500 there's about 50 or so that you say no haven't you cannot say with any degree of certainty who they were killed by you probably have about 270 where you could say, yeah, well, they would have obviously been killed by opponents from the other side. And then you have about 170 or so, which would have been deaths that can be laid at the door of various armed combatants, be it the IRA, the RIC or RUC, the specials and the British military. So. It's about a third of the the 500 deaths, maybe, can be attributed to combatants, and the rest are are non-combatant in the cause of them. Yeah, and and how about other other vectors of violence, like, say, house burning? Is that very common in this period? There were certainly thousands and thousands of refugees did come from Belfast to the south, and a lot of them went home after 1922 there were obviously burnings and i think it was actually you know happen made a point at a conference a couple of years ago talking about the the burnings of the big houses the, the anglo-irish gentry mansions and so on in the south during the civil war period 
And he said the most house burnings on the island were not the, the big houses in the south. It was the wee houses in Belfast. And there's many photos of entire streets torched. How it would compare with August 1969, I'm not sure, to be quite honest with you. Probably what has had as much impact wasn't the actual burnings of houses, but the, the terror at the prospect of being burnt out. Okay, so Kieran, the violence first breaks out in the summer of 1920. In the rest of Ireland, the trajectory of events that we think about is things like Bloody Sunday in late 1920, then the truce of July 1921, which is the end of the War of Independence officially. But how does that work in Belfast? Because there's a whole other time period, isn't there? A whole other chronology. The truce is an interesting one because it's, it's viewed as being the end of the War of Independence, a cessation of violence and so on. You get into the autumn and the start of the, the treaty negotiations. There was a very good quote by Roger McCorley, who was commander of the Belfast Brigade. And he said the, the truce lasted six hours only. The pogrom lasted two years. And in actual fact, the timing of the truce, 11th of July in Belfast, was actually one of the worst single days that there had been in Belfast since the initial outbreak. And that was because there was an eruption of police violence in response to an ambush that happened in Raglan Street in West Belfast on the Saturday night. And this sparked an absolutely furious response from the police, from the specials, unionist mobs, and within the space of a few days, there was 14 people killed. So the truce had basically no impact in Belfast. That violence continued during the summer, and it wasn't until September 1921 that you had the first month since the initial outbreak in July 1920, where there wasn't a single death in Belfast. As you were just mentioning there, Kieran, with the police response or the police actions, could you tell us about the police murder gang, as it was called at the time? I said earlier on the Belfast IRA were behaving as part of a national war of independence and doing much the same thing that was being done elsewhere. And part of this involved acquiring guns, disarming police. The 25th of September 1920 was the first police fatality in Belfast, where a constable Leonard was disarmed on the Falls Road at the, the junction with Broadway. There was a struggle. He was killed. That night, the police, in disguise, visited the homes of three Republicans and they were killed in their homes. Ned Trodden, who had been volunteer, had mobilised at Easter 1916, Sean McFadden and Sean Gaynor. And the three of them were killed in their homes by a squad of police led by a district inspector Harrison from Springfield Road Barracks. And this became known as the, the murder gang, later led by district inspector John Nixon. They were basically a group within the, the police acting on their own impulse, taking reprisals for various actions. The murder gang struck again after some auxiliaries were killed in Belfast city centre and two Catholic brothers, Dan and Patrick Duffin, 
were killed in, in their home that night, again by the murder gang. The next morning, to the Duffin house, along came District Inspector Ferris, who had also been involved in the McCurtain murder in Cork back in March 1920. He called to, to the Duffin's house to collect a dog that had been left behind by the killers the night before, and the dog belonged to the police. So it was it was obvious that that the police were acting with impunity and knew they had immunity. You go on and you get a particularly horrific case where a man who was not involved with the IRA or the Sinn Féin, he was a postman. He had been a serviceman during the, the First World War. He was abducted from his house by the police, taken to a remote field in North Belfast, dragged over barbed wire, bayoneted, had his testicles removed and was then shot. And it was the police that had kidnapped him. And then most notoriously, you had the case of the McMahon family, where following the, the killings of, of two policemen in the city centre in March 1922, that night, the house of Owen McMahon, who was a publican, who was a supporter of the Nationalist Party, but not of Sinn Féin or the IRA. His house was broken into. All the men folk in the house, which was him, Ollis, his five sons, the barman who worked for him, they were all lined up in the living room. The women were, were held in a separate room upstairs. And the police opened fire on the assembled men downstairs. All but two were killed. One son hid under a table or a couch, can't remember. One was wounded and left for dead. The police thought they had, they had killed him. But obviously the women folk weren't shot and were able to say that this was a police gang that had broken in the night before. Further on then, um, a few weeks later, in Arnon Street, again following the death of a policeman, the murder gang struck again, visited a number of Catholic homes in the, the Carrick Hill area, and one man was shot. His baby was shot um, beside him. In another house, a man was bludgeoned with a sledgehammer, and the grandson of one of the victims was able to, to give a statement the next day saying that he recognised one of the men who had killed his grandfather in the bed next to him um, because he'd seen him, uh, a policeman on the, the old Lodge Road. So the police murder gang, these were probably the most notorious examples. But as I said, they behaved um, knowing that they weren't going to be punished. And in actual fact, after the, the Ireland Street killings, the widow of one of the victims went to Brown Square Barracks. They asked her, would she come down and do an identity parade to see, could she pick out any of the, the gunmen who had been involved the night before? The police in the station refused to take part in the identity parade. She was leaving the station and she bumped into one of the constables and she said, that's the man who killed my husband last night. She was thrown out of the station. So there was no interest in reining in 
the police murdering. And Kieran, uh, you know, one striking thing about this and what's different from previous bouts of violence in Belfast is that the role of the police, like the police were, the RIC rather, as opposed to the Belfast police, which were disbanded back in the 1860s for being partisan, but the constabulary were generally viewed as a neutral force in Belfast prior to this period. And what changed and how, what explains this kind of savagery you see from parts of the police in Belfast? In most of the previous outbreaks, the ones that you described in the, the 19th century, the violence was directed by one side of the community against the other. What made things different in 1920 was the violence was being now targeted at the police, not just in Belfast, but around Ireland. So Constable Leonard that I mentioned, this brought the reality of what we now call the War of Independence. That brought that home to Belfast, to the RIC. You did have members of the police in the north who had been involved in some of the violence elsewhere in the country. So I mentioned D.I. Ferris, who was suspected of having been involved in the killing of Tomás McCurtain. We haven't talked about District Inspector Swansea, who was one of the people named by the McCurtain inquest jury as having been responsible for the killing of Tomás McCurtain in Cork. Swansea was transferred from Cork to Lisburn. Ferris was transferred from Cork to Springfield Road in Belfast for their own safety. So you had officers in Belfast who had experienced, we'll say, the counterinsurgency elsewhere in the country. And you had probably the unionist instincts of many of the police in Belfast came to the fore. And what was the reaction within the Republican movement throughout the rest of Ireland to this violence? The most notable response in the South was probably the institution of the Belfast boycott, which was led by Sean McEntee, a former Belfast IRA officer. And under the, the boycott, goods supplied by firms in the North were destroyed, returned, blocked. People were encouraged to close bank accounts that they had in banks that were based in the north. Commercial salesmen from northern firms weren't let go about their business. And this was the main response in the south was the boycott. And it was it was like an act of solidarity. Now, whether it had any meaningful impact on the firms being boycotted is probably debatable. There was a memo written by Ernest Blythe, who you'll recall was uh, an Antrim Presbyterian. He was a member of the provisional government in 1922. And in August of that year, he wrote a, a memo and he basically said the Belfast boycott had no more impact than a shower of rain on Cave Hill, which is just outside Belfast. In other words, he was saying it was meaningless other than a performative act of solidarity from the South. Later on, after the treaty, the response in the South was very different. As you just mentioned there, Kieran, with the treaty, that's another thing that's thrown into the mix for the Northern IRA and the Belfast IRA in particular, that they have to choose sides. 
on what side of the treaty split that they're going to come down, whether to support it or oppose it. And how did they react to the treaty divide? It's actually very interesting. If you take as a focal point, Joe McKelvey. Now, as everyone probably knows, Joe McKelvey was one of the four executed in Mount Joy in December 1922. The whole thing, one from each province, and Joe McKelvey was the was the one executed from Ulster. They were obviously anti-treaty leaders. If you go back to the immediate aftermath of the signing of the treaty in December 1921, so a year before McKelvey was, was shot, the next night after the treaty had been, been signed, there was a Cayley held in Clonus, and the leaders of all the, the Northern IRA divisions and brigades attended that. McKelvey was the officer commanding the 3rd Northern Division, and he came out of the Cayley having met with Owen O'Duffy, and he told one of his subordinate officers that, according to the treaty, Belfast could vote itself out. Now, this was obviously poor Joe didn't really understand the clause relating to the boundary commission and what it would do. And there was no way West Belfast was going to vote itself out of Northern Ireland. Later on in December 1921, there was prisoner releases. And one of those released was Dennis McCullough, who had been previously president of the IRB. He had been the the commander of the Belfast Volunteers that mobilised in at Easter 1916. McCullough was released from, from prison and he met with the senior officers at the time of the 3rd Northern Division. He met them in Belfast. They discussed the treaty and came to a conclusion that they would support the treaty, provided the southern leadership would agree to a number of conditions. So on Stevens's night, 1921, McCullough and McKelvey came to Dublin and they met Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith in the Gresham Hotel. And they put, put forward their conditions and said that they would accept the treaty provided the conditions were accepted. Collins and Griffith said, absolutely. And McKelvey then was in a position of accepting the treaty. So he obviously changed his mind between December 1921 and later on. And the Belfast IRA did actually split over the question of the treaty. They split at the same time as the, the IRA in, in the rest of the country split, which was the, the timing of the First Army Convention at the end of March 1922, where the, the anti-treaty army executive was set up and Joe McKelvey was elected as, as a member of the executive. Um, the IRA in Belfast split at the time. And I think probably the general conception would be that the majority of the Belfast IRA opted to stay loyal to EHQ in Beggar's Bush to Mulcahy and O'Duffy and so on. That's not to say that they were necessarily pro-treaty. That would be far too much of a stretch. They were pro-GHQ in respect of their loyalties. And that was purely because GHQ had made better offer of arms, 
ammunition and so on to the Belfast IRA than the executive had. So it was basically a Dutch auction and GHQ won the auction. So a considerable number of the pro-GHQ side of the split in Belfast later came down to the Curra to be trained for an offensive in the north, later joined the Free State Army and so on. But if you go by the records in the military service pension collection, it's quite interesting because they talk about two critical dates, one being the truce and one, the second being the, the 1st of July 1922 when the Civil War starts. And the nominal roles for the Belfast IRA on this second critical date are all taken as being executive forces. Now, there's about 800 or thereabouts people on the, the nominal roles for the second date, which would be a majority of the Belfast Brigade, as far as can be established from, from the nominal roles. Now, some of these 800 who were supposedly executive forces, i.e. anti-treaty, some of them later, now a small minority, some of them later joined the Free State Army. So the definition of which side of the treaty split you were on in Belfast was nowhere near as rigid as it would have been elsewhere in the country. So there was a degree of flexibility. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to the Belfast IRA, they're really fighting another war. I mean, the first half of 1922 is the most violent period in Belfast. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I would actually go back to our earlier discussion about the truce and the fact that the truce that came into to play in July 1921 in the South had no impact in the North. So there, there was no end to the War of Independence that had begun in the North in 1920 with the burning of the tax offices, shall we say, and the attacks on the barracks. That War of Independence never came to an end in the sense that the War of Independence in the South did. So I mentioned about the Unionist government got control of policing and security in November 1921. And that month was the worst month to date for, for death in Belfast. It, it basically reached a, a new peak. Then you get into the period after the treaty. So the first couple of months in 1922, the focus for IRA activity generally in the north moves to the border areas and the attempts to, to destabilize the new unionist entity there. So probably the most notable example of that being the whole Ferrari around what was known as the Monaghan footballers, where a group of IRA men ostensibly traveling to Derry for a GAA match, but in reality to plan a jailbreak, were arrested. In response to, to the arrest of those men, O'Duffy ordered incursions over the border by southern, mainly southern-based divisions of the IRA, and they kidnapped about 40 prominent unionist politicians, policemen, specials, and so on, and brought them back south of the border to be held hostage for the, the return of the Monaghan footballers. You had a particular incident in Clonus in February 1922, 
for a train load of specials coming from their depot in Newtonards and heading towards Fermanagh. That train passed through Southern Territory because that's the way the railway route ran. And in Clonus Station, there was a shootout between the local IRA and the specials on the train. That night in Belfast, a group of children were playing in Weaver Street, which was in the north of the city. They were actually playing in a couple of streets and they were herded into Weaver Street by a policeman who's told them, look, go play with your own kind. And when they were assembled in a group, along comes somebody and throws a grenade at the kids. And there were multiple fatalities, injuries and so on. And then the violence in Belfast after the, the Weaver Street killings, the violence starts ratcheting up again. Throughout March, surpassed November. And March, then you had the McMahon family killings. At the end of March, the violence had got so bad that Churchill brought James Craig, the Unionist Prime Minister, and Michael Collins, the chairman of the provisional government. He brought them together, basically wrapped their heads together, and they came up with what was called the second Craig Collins Pact. The first one had been in January, lasted a couple of days and then fell apart when they couldn't agree on the scope of the, the Boundary Commission's work. Churchill banged their heads together at the end of March and they came up with the second Craig Collins Pact. And the first line of it was, peace is declared today. And the next night you had Yarnan Street killings that I talked about um, previously. And through throughout then April and May, the violence escalated even further. And then in the second half of May, it completely went off the scale because the Northern IRA, not just in Belfast, but across the north, launched what was to become known as the Northern Offensive. Now, this is an interesting point, Kieran, because we're talking now about Michael Collins and the Craig Collins pacts. And when you read through it, it seems like what did Collins get out of these pacts? Like, what was what was even the point of him doing them? Because he doesn't seem to have negotiate, either negotiated very well or, or got anything in return for the negotiations. But now that you're leading on to the, the Northern Offensive, I think this is very interesting in regards to Collins' approach to the North, and was he sincere in what people assume to be his views about attacking the North? Collins in relation to the North is very interesting. You should remember that he was actually a TD for Armagh, elected in the summer of 1921, visited county for the first time in September of that year, and he made quite a conciliatory speech on that occasion, conciliatory towards unionism. And as TD for Armagh, he was actually the first person to vote on the treaty in, in the Dáil because they, they voted in alphabetical order of constituency. After the signing of the, the treaty um, and the, the establishment of the provisional government, Collins very much became the spokesman for northern nationalism. So if we take the provisional government set up in the middle of January 1921, and the first Craig Collins Pact was instituted at the end of that month, 
Now, one of the, the clauses in the, the first pact was the lifting of the Belfast boycott. So this was an olive branch, if you like, to, to unionism. And in response, the, the, the Craig offering was to reinstate as far as possible the workers that had been expelled from the shipyards and the other workplaces. The pact fell, fell apart within a few days because they basically disagreed over the degree to which territory would be reassigned by the, the Boundary Commission. So Collins then in the spring of, of 1921, it's fascinating actually to read the files of the Department of the Taoiseach in the, the National Archives in Bishop Street, because there's this continual chain of telegrams back and forth between Craig and Collins sniping at each other from the sort of remotenesses of Belfast and Dublin. And basically, Collins complaining a lot to Craig and then complaining to Churchill to an extent that Craig wasn't paying any notice. So, for example, after the, the second pact, Collins said, look, are these murders of the McMahons and the killings in Ireland Street and so on? There needs to be a special inquiry set up into them. And Craig is going, no, but the, the police are going to look into this. So Collins is, on the one hand, pursuing a, a diplomatic approach to, to unionism, being quite conciliatory and so on. Meanwhile, Collins is also wearing his other hat, which is president of the IRB and a member of the Supreme Council and of the executive. And also on the Supreme Council are Richard Mulcahy and Owen O'Duffy. Now, the actions of the three of these are quite interesting when you, when you view them as a triangle. I used the phrase troika in the book. Collins, Mulcahy and O'Duffy are quite interesting from, from a military perspective then because O'Duffy wrote to Collins at the time of the, the border kidnappings of the Unionists and so on. And O'Duffy told Collins, I have set up an Ulster Council with all the Northern IRA division commanders and this was to be chaired by, by Frank Aiken. So you've got Collins, the diplomat, and then Collins, the, the militarist. O'Duffy would not have gone down this road of setting up the, the Ulster Council, doing the kidnappings, without, at very least, tacit agreement from Collins. Kieran, uh, you know, there's different arguments about what happens next in May 1922. And some people will tell you that what happens is a failed uprising, you know, that's orchestrated by Collins, you know, that just collapses under its own weight. Or some people will tell you, though, that Collins, and I think you argue this, Kira, some people will tell you that Collins wasn't serious about it in the first place and kind of sabotaged it himself. Oh, what's your take on that? I think before you get as far as May of 1922 and the offensive that did actually happen, you have to rewind about a month April of 1922 and we talked about the, the army executive being set up by the, the anti-treaty IRA. They reinstated the Belfast boycott that Collins had lifted back in January under the terms of the pact. They seized what was called Fowler Hall which was a building on current Parnell Square. They seized that as a refugee centre to house families that had been driven out of Belfast by the pogrom. 
So all of a sudden then, Collins, it's starting. And of course, you've got McKelvey sitting on the, the army executive. Now it's starting to seem that between the, the boycott, McKelvey being on the army executive, the seizure of Fowler Hall, the Collins is at risk of being outflanked in relation to the North, for which he has been positioning himself as a spokesman. He's about to be outflanked by the anti-treaty side of, of the, the treaty split. And it's in, in the course of, of April that the plan for a joint offensive on the North is hatched between the pro and anti-treaty factions of the IRA and of the IRB. It's hatched with the people in the forecourts and it's hatched at meetings held in the forecourts attended by the likes of Mulcahy and O'Duffy. What the plan involved, there were three aspects to it. First of all, the anti-treaty IRA would send men up to, to Donegal to assist the Northern IRA. Collins would organize shipments of arms and ammunition to the IRA in the North to build up their strength. And the third part of it was that all the divisions, the northern divisions of the IRA, plus the, the Munster anti-treaty IRA that were now in Donegal, plus the first Midlands division of the IRA, which was responsible for a part of Eritrean Fermanagh, all of these divisions would launch a coordinated attack with the objective of overthrowing the northern government. Now, it was supposed to be coordinated right across the board. Started falling apart at the beginning of May. It was scheduled to all happen the second, third, that, the night of the second and third of, of May. The Belfast IRA asked for a postponement because they weren't ready and they had a plan to, to seize armoured cars from one of the barracks in Belfast City. The second Northern Division said its plans were too far advanced and they couldn't hold back. So they went ahead with, with their attacks in isolation. They were assisted by elements of the, the Munster IRA striking from across the border in Nigal. What I find particularly controversial is other divisions in the IRA, particularly the ones in the border area. So for example, the 4th Northern Division, which straddled Louth, South Down, South Armagh, a countermanding order was sent to Frank Aiken, the OC of 4th Northern, telling them basically not to take part in the offensive. Now, th this countermanding order is mentioned by a guy called John McCoy, who was Aiken's adjutant. McCoy gave a statement to the Bureau of Military History, and he said the countermanding order came in. Now, for an order to come to Aiken, it had to come from somebody above Aiken. And there was only a couple of people that outranked Aiken at all. O'Duffy was the chief of staff. Mulcahy at this stage was the minister for defence. So here's the 4th Northern Division. Get a countermanding order telling them not to take part. Mulcahy and O'Duffy both report to Collins. Mulcahy and Collins had both been involved in the Easter Rising in 1916 and knew the chaos that had been thrown over the rising 
by Owen McNeill's countermanding order. A similar countermanding order arrived in the Perth Northern Division area in Donegal. And again, there's a, a reference to it in a witness statement by a member of the second Northern Division from Tyrone. They had fled over the border to escape internment, but he refers to a countermanding order arriving, telling them not to take part in strikes across the border. So there's several references to a countermanding order going to the first Northern Division, to the fourth Northern Division. Tom Fitzpatrick was at that stage, he was the brigade commander of the, the Antrim Brigade, and he gave a statement to the Bureau of Military History. And interestingly, he, the Northern statements to the Bureau were largely gathered by John McCoy, who had been Aiken's adjutant in 1922. And McCoy interviewed Tom Fitzpatrick, and Fitzpatrick, in a statement, he says, countermanding order was sent, but it never arrived. My reading or interpretation of that, because the Bureau of Statements don't record the questions that the interviewer put, was that McCoy, knowing of the countermanding order that had arrived to Frank Aiken's HQ, asked Fitzpatrick a question on the lines of, was there no countermanding order? And Fitzpatrick said, never came to us. Probably most tellingly in relation to the countermanding orders, after Aiken abided by the order and didn't take part in the, the offensive, Roger McCauley, who at that stage had been wounded, went to, to Dublin, saw O'Duffy and said to him, look, the 4th Northern Division haven't engaged in this offensive. Now, O'Duffy didn't reprimand McCauley for not abiding by the countermanding order, but O'Duffy assured McCorley that he would order the 4th Northern Division to take part in the offensive, even though it had already begun sort of 10 days earlier. So the, the countermanding order or orders and who got them and probably equally who didn't get them, I think is very interesting. Two quick follow-up questions, Kieran. Is one, what's going on here? Like, is, does Collins just get cold feet? Does he think you know this might uh, collapse the treaty, or or what's going on? And second question is, what effect does this have on the IRA in Belfast? In relation to to Collins, by the middle of May 1922, it had become very clear that whatever prospects had been hoped for a reconciliation in the south between the pro and anti factions. The prospects of healing the treaty divisions, the pro those prospects were melting away. And it was clear that, that there was not going to be a reconciliation. Now, if you go back to what I said, the whole reason for the Northern Offensive being instituted jointly between the pro and anti treaty factions was a way of basically the North was the glue that was supposed to hold the pro and anti treaty sides together and avert a, a, a final split. When the absolute certainty of that split became more apparent, well, then the need for a glue was no longer as pressing from Collins's point of view. You also had the, the fact that as armed conflict became probably more likely, there had been armed exchanges in May of 1922 between pro and anti-treaty elements in Kilkenny 
And then notably in Donegal, where there was four soldiers in the Free State Army were killed in Newton Cunningham. So the prospect of violence was becoming more apparent. And in light of the army convention, the pro-treaty faction were outnumbered in terms of IRA divisions, brigades, and what have you, that aligned with the executive rather than with GHQ. And among the few divisions whose loyalty GHQ could count on were the 1st Northern Division, the 5th Northern Division, 4th Northern Division under Ick, and at this stage was still neutral. So rather than expending avowedly loyal divisions in a futile attack on the Unionist government, considering that the Unionist government was backed up by, I think at that stage they had 25,000 specials across the north, about 2,500 RUC. You had seven battalions of the British Army in Belfast alone, at 7,000 men. It became obvious at the end of June the lengths to which the British government would support the Unionist government in the north when you had the Battle of Balik Pedigo and started off as exchanges of fire between the IRA and specials on the Fermanagh border. And the British army was deployed in mass and you had the use of artillery by the British armies for the first time in Ireland since the Easter Rising. So it was very obvious that the prospects for the Northern Offensive were non-existent. Um, so why waste your loyal divisions pursuing this when, as I say, the need for the glue was gone anyway? So Okay, and, and in Belfast? In Belfast, it's it's interesting because I mentioned that the, the plan was to seize armoured cars, and they did actually break into the barracks in Musgrave Street. They had started the engines of the Lancia cars, seized rifles and so on, and then a sentry raised the alarm, machine gun opened up, and they had to leave everything behind. And the second half of May 1922, I mentioned this earlier, the violence really went off the scale. It was the single worst month for deaths in the whole two and a bit year period. And it was absolutely ferocious. So several days, you have casualty counts running a dozen, 15 and so on in a day, which you didn't have on many occasions prior to that. The Belfast IRA was massively outnumbered. I mentioned about 7,000 British soldiers. They resorted to an arson campaign targeting businesses mainly in the city centre, some along the falls, which had been cinemas that were going to be used as emergency barracks for specials or police or whatever. The cinemas on the falls were burnt as well. Um, But mainly involving businesses in and around the the city centre. And the the press at the time started referring to the the appearance of the falls, firebugs, they were called. And there was something like 80 to 100 premises burnt out over the the course of a couple of weeks in in May-June. But by then, and with the the failure of the, the supporting divisions to come to their aid, the Third Northern was very isolated. At the very end of May 1925, a Unionist MP, 
William Twardell, was shot in Belfast city centre. And in response to that killing, the unionist government, which had passed the Special Powers Act back in April, one of the special powers granted to the unionist government was the power of internment. And following Twardell's killing, internment was unleashed. And basically the IRA in Belfast fled, or a large proportion of them fled. Same with the second Northern Division in Derry and Tyrone fled over the border. They regrouped in the Curra during the summer of 1922, and they, they, they had their own barracks and um, they were being retrained ostensibly for a new offensive in the North. Now, this new offensive never materialized and Collins made encouraging sounds and said, if we can't get what we want in the North, we'll just tear up the treaty and start all over again. And then, the provisional government had put in place a subcommittee to look at the situation in the north. And this is where Ernest Blythe wrote this memo in the middle of August in 1922. And then Collins was killed. The provisional government adopted the recommendations of the, the subcommittee on the north. But nobody told the, the northern divisions who were still in the Corrupt. And through the autumn of 1922, Seamus Woods, who was the, the OC of Third Northern Division, wrote a string of letters to Richard Mulcahy saying, look, we're here, we're training. We know what Michael Collins's policy was because he was very clear about it. We haven't heard anything what's going on. And he was getting basically no response. His letters started getting snippier and snippier. And I think in one of them he referred to, it is clear that the provisional government um, does not share the, the view of the late General Collins. And eventually at the end of October, 1922, so three months after they had been training in the Curra, two months after the death of Collins, Mulcahy eventually writes back to Woods and he said, I can't answer for any words that were spoken by, by anybody else, but the policy of this government is the policy of the treaty. In other words, he was saying, you're on your own. Now, at this point, the, the Belfast IRA that was in, in the current fractures, basically, many of them return home. Many of them can't because they're they're wanted. They're they're obviously afraid of the prospect of being interned or worse. So a lot of them stay, and in the absence of of any other choice, a lot of them end up joining the the Free State Army. So it's actually interesting. Then a couple of weeks later, the the Free State Army on the twelfth and thirteenth, the night of the twelfth, thirteenth of November, there's a census taken in the Free State Army. And I think there's about 600 or so men from the 3rd Northern Division area, but there's only about 400 or so of those can actually be confirmed as having been members of the 3rd Northern Division at some point, as measured by the, the nominal roles. So a lot of the, the Belfast men that, that were in the Curra and the Antrim and East Down men, they basically snuck back home. Now, Kieran, we could probably talk for another hour on this subject, 
but unfortunately I think uh, time is, is against us. But one of the questions that I would be curious about is in terms of the Catholic community in Belfast, what impact did this have on the popular consciousness, the feelings within the community, such appalling events over two years? And how long did that stay in the memory, the events of these years? I think Belfast nationalists were traumatized by the violence that they had inflicted on them over that two and a bit year period. I think Northern nationalists generally were traumatized both by the violence that happened in, in the North and also by the, the Boundary Commission and where people in Derry or South Amar, other areas had thought the Boundary Commission would hand them over to the Free State, that didn't happen. So there was a huge level of trauma and living memory of, of what had happened in 1920 and 22. Then you had uh, another outbreak of sectarian rioting in 1935, which kind of reignited that sort of folk memory and people who had been alive in, in 1922 were going through it all again in, in 1935. And so obviously then when you jump forward to August 1969 and Bombay Street, I mentioned at the end of Kashmir Road, Conway Street, the very same streets that had seen the initial eruptions of violence in July of 1922, there's armed mobs coming down those same streets again in August 1969, backed by specials. You've police driving around firing machine guns into blocks of flats. It reawakened the, the trauma from before. And bear in mind that people may not, by 1969, people may not have lived through it themselves, but their parents or their grandparents had. And in actual fact, you had continuity, not just in terms of people's memories, but in terms of some of the people who took part. For example, Joe Cullen was in 1922. He was the commander of the engineering battalion of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA. In August 1969, Joe Cullen found himself with a revolver at the bottom of Broadway protecting against incursions of loyalists from South Belfast coming into West Belfast. Joe Cullen, and there was another man with him at the time, Jimmy Steele, the two of them were at Broadway. And Jimmy Steele had been involved, very heavily involved in the 1940s. And it was actually the historian, John O'Neill, said to me that between them, Joe Cullen and Jimmy Steele were aged about 130 in August, 1969. But you had literally the same people involved in 1920 to 22 and later on in August 69. And how about the unionist uh, perception and memory of this period, Kira? I find that question very interesting. From a point of view of however little is written about the history of Republican Belfast in 1920 to 22. There is practically nothing written about or in terms of a foundation narrative of the northern state 
apart from the home rule crisis, there's very little else, certainly published recently, and it's largely glossed over. There just isn't the same literature about it that you would have in relation to the decade of centenaries generally. So in terms of unionist memory of 1920 to 22, I can't really answer. It's certainly nowhere comparable to the, the memory that is there of the home rule crisis of the start of World War One. There's some amazing research been done on not just the, the unionists who joined the 36 Ulster Division, but also nationalists who followed Redmond's call and joined the 10th and 16th. Um, but nationalists from the north, it's people like Jason Burke, Philip Orr has written the, the Road to the Psalm. Richard Grayson has looked at involvement from both sides of the community in the, in the British Army. So there's a lot of, of work being done on the memory and the history and so on, but only up as far as World War I. And then it, it tends to peter out. So I have, n like, apart from newspaper accounts that would be contemporary at the time, but there's relatively little discussion of it. And Kieran, just one final question, which again has kind of uh, echoes in, in the later troubles. One debate, a disagreement, I think, between yourself and the likes of Robert Lynch is that the IRA of the 1920s was not an effective defender at all of the, the Catholic community. And Robert Lynch's argument is that there's few of them killed in action. They didn't do much to deter riots or pogroms and so on. But you don't agree with that, I understand. No, I, I take a different view than Robert Lynch. He wrote before most of the military service pension collection material had been released. And successive releases under, from that collection have shown that the majority of IRA men killed in Belfast were actually killed in action during riot situations. I won't list them all off, but I think he mentioned that there were sort of 10 killed and five of them were killed by the murder gang. So how could the IRA have been in any way in defense? Um, in actual fact, so far to date, if we go by the, the MSPC releases, you've got 23 IRA killed in Belfast, two others killed elsewhere. You've got seven FINA killed in, in Belfast. And of those killed, a mere handful were killed by the murder gang. So the majority of them were killed in action, if you like. And they're, at this point, they're the ones that we know about. So in terms of the, the IRA response, it was a lot more active than Robert Lynch would, would argue. In terms of its effectiveness, if you remember earlier on in the conversation, I talked about areas in which the Catholic stroke nationalist population was more homogenous and the, the most homogenous being West Belfast. And West Belfast was where the, the Belfast IRA had its roots, if you like, and was first organised. And in West Belfast, if you look at the, the fatalities um, between sort of Catholic civilians, Protestant civilians, and combatants, various combatants, in West Belfast, a combination of the IRA ex-servicemen and the British military to a large extent 
kept hostile unionist forces at bay. I'm not saying completely by any means. There was huge death in West Belfast as well. But given the concentration of nationalist population there, the, the fatalities weren't as bad there as you would expect with the high population concentration. Where the IRA was much weaker was around the the isolated pockets like Ardoyne and the Bone, like the whole stretch from Sailor Town over to, to the New Lodge, where you had much more mixed religious communities. And in those areas, the IRA was less effective. And even the intervention of British military, uh, and it must be said that throughout this period, the, the British military were actually very even-handed. I think in his book, uh, Northern Ireland, the Orange State, Michael Farrell uh, refers to the British Army as behaving with fine impartiality. And in actual fact, it was mathematically fine in the sense that the British Army killed 35 Catholic civilians. They killed 34 Protestant civilians and they killed one a special. 35 from each side of the divide were killed by the British Army. But in these areas of North Belfast, where the IRA was less well established, where the community was more mixed in terms of religious political background, that's where the casualties were much higher and where Catholics generally bore the brunt of the worst of the violence. So in those areas, you would absolutely say, yes, the IRA completely failed to defend local nationalists. Interestingly, Ballymacarrad is the one area that proves the exception. And this is the, the isolated enclave on the east, on the wrong side of the river, if you like, surrounded by unionist areas. And Ballymacarrad is the, the only area in Belfast that I've identified where Catholic stroke nationalist fatalities are actually lower than Protestant stroke unionist fatalities. And sorry, Kieran, just just on that, I mean, isn't there also a thing where the IRA at one point is targeting people going to work in the shipyards in East Belfast? So that might account for some of that. I think so, because certainly the, the incidents that you're you're referring to are the, the tram bombings that happened in the city centre in November of 1921. And these were obviously nakedly sectarian attacks, and they targeted trams going on the basis of the destination board that was up on the front of them. So, for example, if a tram was going to the Shankill Road from East Belfast, it was obviously going to be carrying shipyard workers back to their homes. There were several attacks on trams of this nature. Numbers of people were killed. And, but, but this was the IRA behaving in a very, very definitely sectarian manner. There was also an incident in a Cooper's Yard in Little Patrick Street, South York Street in North Belfast. And in early 1922, a group of IRA men went into the, to the Cooper's Yard. All the workers were asked for their religion. And this is exactly like the, the Kingsmill Massacre later on in the, the more recent troubles. All the workers were asked their religion. The Catholics were sent away and there was 
four Protestants left and the four Protestant workmen were shot. Three of them killed, one survived. So the IRA at that point was behaving in sectarian fashion. It wasn't all about global republicanism. Yeah, the savagery wasn't one-sided. Well, Kieran, thank you very much. We really appreciate you coming on. That's Kieran Glennon, and his book is From Pogrom to Civil War, Tom Glennon and the Belfast IRA, which is available at all good bookshops and online, I'm sure. Thanks again to John Dorney, my co-host there from The Irish Story. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, you can visit our website on irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. So thank you again. Thank you very much for listening. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.